0: So we're on Lord's Day 11, <clears throat> so Heidelberg Catechism, you remember, just as by means of review, is a summary of the Christian faith. Uh, catechism is a word that comes from the, the Greek word katekeo, uh, which means uh, I teach or to teach. So it's just a, it's a teaching tool. Uh, it's a summary of the Christian faith. Uh, Written in 1563, published then, was written primarily by Zacharias Ursinus, a great Reformed theologian teaching at the University of Heidelberg, one of the oldest universities in Europe. Commissioned by uh, Frederick the Elector, who was basically the ruler of what was called the Palatinate, it's a big chunk of what is now Germany. Uh, m- medieval era, remember that the, the countries don't divide up, the countries of Europe don't divide up as neatly as we see them today. There uh, are huge republics, huge principalities, and uh, and as uh, Dr. Glomsrud taught uh, last year on uh, Lutheran imperial politics, a lot of the Reformation uh, was uh, political in nature. Uh, you know, one prince or ruler or elector wanting his realm to be Protestant rather than Catholic. That was certainly the case with Frederick the Elector in the 16th century, in the 1560s. And so he commissions Ursinus to write this wonderful catechism. It's not the only one he wrote. He wrote a few others. This one was actually written for children. That's a little blow to our pride, I know. Um, but the, the larger catechism is wonderful, and I'm hoping that we'll go through that one day, it has I think 320, 330 questions. It gets into covenant theology. It's beautiful, um, but it's pretty cumbersome and unwieldy for uh, memorization purposes. And so the Heidelberg uh, was written for children, but it's it's still profound enough as it goes through guilt, grace, and gratitude, and kind of modeled after uh, the Book of Romans. And in the grace section, which is where we're at right now, the middle section. It exposits the, uh, the Apostles' Creed. So the Apostles' Creed is this ancient creed. Creed just comes from the Latin word credo, meaning I believe. Everybody has a creed. It's important that we all confess the same thing. And so the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed are considered standard creeds for uh, Christianity. There, there is no Orthodox Christianity outside of those creeds. Um, and so at the time of the Reformation, the... Uh, the Protestant Reformers were very careful to help people understand what the Apostles' Creed means and, uh, and to memorize it and to uh, explain each line and uh, from a biblical perspective. So that's where we're at right now. Uh, we're in the middle of the Heidelberg Catechism's exposition of the Creed. So if you have your Heidelberg Catechism open or you can, you can look in the back of the Psalter hymnal, um, in fact, I'll here, I'll just turn with you so we all have the same page. <clears throat> so to the back of this altar hymnal, if you go to Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 11, they divided the catechism into 52 Lord's Days so that you would get a good, full representation of Christianity, of the Christian faith, guilt, grace, and gratitude, justification, sacraments, Ten Commandments, Lord's Prayer, All in the space of one year. And so um, today, of course, is Lord's Day 2 for the year 2017. So we confess Lord's Day 2 this evening in the worship service. But we're studying, uh, we're going slowly, and we're studying uh, Lord's Day 11 now. And notice what it says in questions 29 and 30. Actually, if you just turn the page and go back for a sec to Lord's Day 9... Question 26 is, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? That's the first line in the Apostles' Creed, right? So then it explains what we mean by that. And then it goes into the doctrine of providence in the next Lord's Day, which we looked at before uh, Christmas. Uh, Now we pick up in the next line. What comes after in the Creed? What comes after, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? What's the next line? And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. So now the catechism goes through each one of those lines, actually word by word in a few places. So we start here, question 29. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? He saves us from our sins. Salvation cannot be found. Anyone else, it is futile to look for any salvation elsewhere. Very good. Um, so, right, why is he called Jesus? Uh, sometimes we take that for granted. Um, the answer, notice, is because he saves us from our sins. Does that ring a bell of any passage in Scripture? What, is that, what does that remind you of? The angel visiting yeah, Mary and also visiting Joseph. Yeah, so if we look... Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Oh, goodness. Matthew 1. Uh, yeah, so when uh, the angel visits Joseph, he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Matthew chapter 1. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Huge relief, you can imagine, on his part. She, verse 21, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, what does that mean? Um, When we say Jesus, Jesus, and uh, Christ, it's important to understand that that's not his first and last name. That, that might seem obvious to most of us probably, but maybe for some we, we don't quite get that. And certainly your average person on the street doesn't get it. Uh, we, we've become so biblically illiterate as a society that we don't even know these basic things anymore. Christ, as the, um, the Heidelberg Catechism will go on to explain, is his office. Uh, it comes from the word Christos. In Greek it looks like this. Um, actually, I think I wrote that in the bulletin. But I couldn't get the lowercase sigma, because a sigma, this is an S, and when the S is on the end of a word, in lowercase, it looks like that. And it's not in there, in the word program or the word publisher. I wasted like 45 minutes looking for it. Anyway, uh, Christos, uh, Christ, simply, it's, uh, in Hebrew, the word is Mashiach, uh, Messiah, anointed. This means he is the anointed one. So this is his office. Christ is his office. It's not his last name. What is the name Jesus? Um, he, this is really interesting because Jesus is just a Greek version of a Hebrew name that was a very common Hebrew name in the first century. Joshua. Yeah, Yeshua. Um, so it was Yesus in Greek. So I wrote Christos up there. I'm not trying to show off. Maybe just a little... Um, Jesus, actually I might get this wrong. there you go Jesus Jesus is is uh, the name Jesus. It's a Greek version of the word Joshua or Yeshua, which is just Yahweh saves. Now let's just think about this for a minute because you know our names all they all mean something they, they come from some kind of meaning, um, you know sometimes people make them up or whatever, but uh, they actually have often names have uh, some Greek or Latin or Hebrew etymology. Etymology is just the study of words and where they come from. And uh, with, with the name Jesus, it's just a Greek version of Joshua, Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Common name in the first century amongst Hebrews. It was not unique. This was a name like John or Robert or Michael. Um, You know, some of us are cursed with these super common names, Mike Brown. There's a bazillion of us, right? And uh, someone just, I just published an article recently, and I was very tempted to start just using M.G. Brown because there's so many Michael Browns, you know. There's, we don't have to get into it, all the Michael Browns, you know, takes us on rabbit trails. Anyway, Jesus was a common name, Uh, 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 Yeshua, because in the first century, think about it. What was it like for Jews in the first century? It was not the land of the free, home of the brave. Picture you live in Jerusalem or a little town like Bethlehem or Nazareth in the first century. You're a Jewish family. What's life like for you? Who rules the land? The Roman, Caesar. Yeah, and you don't like that. They do what they want. They've taken away the, uh, the right for the Jews to exercise capital punishment, which is why the, the Jews had to find some charges on Jesus to bring them to Caesar. Um, so it was a time of distress, and there were a lot of freedom fighters. There were a lot of uh, zealots, if you remember, um, terrorists, depending on how you look at it, uh, who were using violence to try to throw the Romans out. Um, so Yeshua was a popular name in the first century. Because what does Yeshua remind you of? Okay, what does jo- Joshua, we say Joshua, Joshua is Yeshua. I'm using saying it in Hebrew. What does Joshua remind you of? It's not a trick question. Joshua, yeah, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, 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 Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Remember? Some of you are cursed with the kind of childhood I had. Uh, So, remember, Joshua was the leader that took Israel across the Jordan, because Moses was not allowed to go across the Jordan, remember? He struck the rock, misrepresented God. God said, you won't go into the promised land. You will see it from afar. And so his lieutenant, Joshua, led the covenant people of God into the promised land and defeated the enemy and displaced the wicked. And this is the leader. And so they're looking for Messiah. They're looking for the next Joshua who's going to do that. And, of course, it would be a new Joshua who would do that. But he's, doing, he's going to do it in a far greater way, far better way, than people in the first century had envisioned. Uh, he wasn't going to come and just, you know, rise up as this political leader and kick out the Romans. Uh, he, he would do something far greater, giving himself for the redemption of sinners and leading the whole covenant people of God into the new heavens and new earth and all evil will be displaced. The the Battle of Jericho is a little movie trailer, a little preview of the coming attraction of Jesus and his return on the last day. So the name Jesus is really important. And uh, he will save us from our sins. Yeshua. Yeshua meant Yahweh, the Lord, saves. And he wouldn't save them just from... Uh, political distress, economic distress. He would save them from their sins. He would save them from their sins. This would be a Messiah, a Savior, unlike any other. And then notice what. Any questions on that before I go further? Yeah, John. How much did that resonate in the Old Testament? Um, you know, like the Jewish people looking forward to. That he was going to from sins? Well, that's a good question. Did the Jewish people know that the Messiah would save them from their sins? You find many places in the prophets where that is mentioned. It's it's hinted at, like Isaiah 53, of course, the suffering servant. But in most cases, you find, uh, yeah, he's going to do justice. He's going to uh, free the imprisoned uh, Defend the poor. He's going to remove all evil. He's going to. There, he, he's going to come with this great military power, gloriously. Um, but he would also come to be the suffering servant, as Isaiah said many times. And you know the 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 prophets when they give their prophecies, it's not uh, in simple, straightforward narrative. They see visions. And they're recording what they're seeing. God gives them these pictures. He speaks in pictures, like the book of Revelation is all pictures. And so they record what they see. And a lot of times, it all looks like one event, not that it's actually going to be separate events, that he would come first time in humiliation and then come the second time in exaltation and glorification. And uh, so sometimes they have... Yeah, a difficulty in, in seeing more than one event, which only we can see because of the greater light and revelation of the New Testament. However, they, there's, it's the Old Testament is filled with prophecy about this Messiah, the, the anointed one, the, the Christ, Christos, who would come. And the fact that his name was Yeshua, Jesus, uh, uh Yahweh saves, it uh, just makes perfect sense. And the fact that it was a common name, because Jesus was very common. He wasn't, uh, I mean, he was uncommon in the sense that he's God in human flesh, but he's so common that you wouldn't have noticed him as the Savior. You wouldn't have n- noticed him. Um, he's not the the pretty good-looking guy. We've totally got that mixed up in our head. Um, he would have been the, the guy that, and you know, he had no outward form of appearance that we should desire him, as Isaiah said. But he would bear this name. He would save from their sins. Yeah. Ask a question that you with John today. So we have all these prophecies pointing towards Christ. typically a framework, a hermeneutic, kinda helps us to summon those things. Right. Mm-hmm. You mean in the Old Testament? Yeah, yeah that's a good question. I mean, uh, the, you know, the question is, were there competing hermeneutics, competing ways of interpreting things um, in the Old Testament? That's a good question. There, there's probably good, some good studies done on certain nuances. I think the, the main thing we want to understand, the, the general uh, competing hermeneutic, uh, would have been that it's it, this is purely a political savior or economic savior, and not the one who was promised to our our parents in the garden to crush the serpent's head. That is older and and more significant than just what applied to the nation of Israel. And clearly, you have people like that because by the time you're in the first century. Yeah, everybody's naming their kid Yeshua. because Not because they think he's going to be the Messiah who uh, crushes the serpent's head and overturns the curse of death, which predates Moses, predates Abraham, and affects the whole world. But uh, because he's going to be the guy to kick out these Romans and bring back the glory days of Solomon. And uh, so I think that is, generally speaking, the, the competing hermeneutic. That only, and, and he, you only have a remnant a small remnant who is believing that it's deeper and more significant than that. And those people you see are like Mary in her great Magnificat uh, when the angel Gabriel makes the announcement who this Jesus, the son, is going to be. Her great song uh, talks about the Abrahamic covenant, which predates Moses. Uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he has a right hermeneutic. Their hermeneutic goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. Here's the. I don't want to go too far off on a trail, but this is really interesting that you're bringing up. It, it comes down to this Is the Abrahamic covenant a different covenant in its substance and nature than the Mosaic covenant? If we collapse those two together and say they're the same thing, now we've got problems. Now you're making law and gospel basically the same thing. And. Uh, and then in many ways, at least for the Jews, it's all about them and their nation. Whereas the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of promise. I'm going to give you land, give you people. It's all grace. The Mosaic covenant is a covenant of law. This you must do. And those are two different things. And interesting, I had lunch one time with a, um, a rabbi, a conservative rabbi. Uh, I think he has the largest synagogue in uh, San Diego. Met him through Little League baseball. His son and my son were on the same team. Great fun. Christian pastor, Jewish rabbi. Um, and he had studied under John Levinson. Uh, if you don't know who that is, he's a, a Jewish scholar at Harvard who's written a ton on covenant theology. And uh, I gave him my book, my little book, Sickard Bont- my teeny little book. And uh, you know, and we, we were sitting and talking. I was actually at his house for the Feast of Tabernacles and they had, they had a tabernacle built in their backyard, and it was interesting. And uh, we talked, and I said, in Jewish, in, in your understanding, the hermeneutic for reading the, the, uh, the, the law and the prophets, as they call the Old Testament, um, how do you understand the Mosaic and the Abrahamic covenant? Right off the bat, he says, well, they're fundamentally different. And I thought, wow, in our circles, in reform circles, this is a big debate. You know, um, people are so afraid of dispensationalism that they want to make the Old Covenant and the New Covenant just basically all the same. And certainly Abraham and Moses just iron it all out. But they're different. Who took the vow in the Abrahamic Covenant? God did. Who took the vow in the Sinai Covenant? The people said, all this we will do. Those are two fundamentally different covenants. And that's why Paul, when you get to Galatians, and you have these people who are coming to the church in Galatia saying, oh, well, you, gotta, you can have faith in Jesus, but you also have to keep the law. Um, you talk about a faulty hermeneutic. They were collapsing Abraham and Moses into one. And that's why he talks about these two mountains, two women, Uh, and the the separation of these two covenants. And all the new covenant is, is the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled. And it never is abrogated. Even though the law was given 430 years after God made the covenant with Abraham, that covenant was not abrogated. Very important, though, because if we don't understand the difference between those two, we end up collapsing law and gospel. You end up like this. Well, if America would just obey... We'll be blessed as a nation. Second Chronicle seven fourteen. Yeah. yeah, if if my people, talk about the most arrogant thing I've ever seen. I've seen it a zillion times. American flag flying, and it says, "If my people will hear my voice, this is this is good." It all has to do with Heidelberg Catechism question twenty eight. I got to get the exact to make my point here. <laughs> If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. And there's an American flag next to that. You see this all the time. But the problem is, is who are my people? God wasn't talking about the United States of America. Who was he talking about? He's talking about Israel. And this, is, this, is, uh, this has to do with the Mosaic Covenant, which constituted them a nation. And he over and over again says, you know, if, uh, if you go back because of the mercy and grace that I showed, we're going to get into this tonight in, in Micah 7, um, to the mercy and grace that I showed to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then because of Deuteronomy 30, uh, uh Chapter 4, verse 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Different covenant than the Sinai covenant. And so the problem is, if we in the new covenant collapse Abraham and Moses, you end up making the law and the gospel basically the same thing. And you end up, it's very easy to end up anyway, not in every case, but it's very easy to begin to think of, uh, well, our nation, we're Israel. As if that just continues on into the new covenant. But in fact, that covenant is gone. It's abrogated. I mean, that's the whole book of Hebrews. You know, there's a new covenant. (laughs) And the old covenant is gone. The old covenant just shows us that all the law of the world cannot save you and cannot make your heart obedient. It can expose your sin. It can tell you how you are to live. It can, it's like those walls around a tiger that keep the tiger inside, shows you where the tiger's at, defines his boundaries, but it doesn't change the nature of the tiger. And if a duck flies in to the tiger exhibit, the tiger eats the duck because it's still a tiger. It takes a gospel to change the tiger's heart. And so th- 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 uh, that's a very important question that uh, it really ha- comes down to how are we going to understand God's promises, um, okay, so question, where are we? Question 29. <clears throat> question 20. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? Because he saves us from our sins. His name is Jesus, is the Greek version of Yeshua. Yahweh saves. Salvation cannot be found in anyone else. It is futile to look for any salvation elsewhere. Now, this is important. For us to think about, because, um, you know, we live in a a time, in a day, when um, we often hear religious claims that all roads lead to the same God. Uh, I actually believe that. All roads do lead to God. But um, one road is going to be through a mediator, and all the other roads are not. And you're going to end up facing the same God. But you don't want to go the road with no mediator. Uh, I hope I didn't lose you. In other words, you worship Buddha. Oh, you're gonna, it's going to lead you to God, all right, but not in a way you want. He's going to stand in judgment over you. You want to be a Muslim? It'll lead you to the true and living God, but it's not going to save you. In other words, everybody, everybody has to meet the true and living God. You take whatever path you want, you're going to have to meet him. It's appointed once for man to die, and then comes the judgment, Hebrew says. Because he's the creator, he's the maker. The only way for us to be spared from the wrath of God, which is what it means to be saved, not that I had a religious experience you know, in April 1974, but rather that I'm spared from God and his wrath. The only way that that can happen is through Jesus Christ. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. So worshiping, trying to worship God any way outside of Jesus Christ will not lead to salvation. It will lead you to God, but only in his judgment. Now, today, here's the problem. Today, is in our culture, uh, we live in a you know, very uh, democratized, pluralistic culture. And and that's certainly not bad in everything. Uh, Some of that is good. Uh, It's good that we we should be able to coexist with one another peacefully and respect each other as uh, fellow image bearers, despite religious beliefs. Uh, We should never, you cannot force people to be Christians. The, The Great Commission is not make a nation Christian by the point of the sword and by legislation. You don't find that in the book of Acts. Well, it's been done many times but uh, but you don't find it in the Bible. And it always leads to problems. Rather, the, uh, we, we, the, the church is a holy nation, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, a chosen race made up of people from every tongue, nation, tribe, skin color, language, all over the globe. And so we have this dual citizenship. However, uh, the only way that uh, we can be saved is through Christ, we say. Well, people hear that, and that sounds arrogant. It sounds in the ears of people as if we're saying, my way of religious experience is the only right way for religious experience. Your way is wrong. My way is right. Kind of like you know, if we said, my diet plan is the only right diet plan, your diet plan is the wrong diet plan. You know, somebody said that to you, you'd be like, who is this guy, right? What we have to make clear to society is that we are not Christians because, boy, it just gave me the best religious experience. And you've heard me say this many times. You can get a personal religious or philosophical or meaningful uh, spiritual experience through all kinds of things. Uh, people find that, you know, by going through... AA or 12-step program, or they do yoga, or they turn paleo, or they, you know, who knows what. They listen to Oprah, and boy, they're just like a different person, renewed. And uh, well, what's wrong with my way? The person says, why do I have to be a Christian? What we have to explain to the world is not that my way is better because it's my way. It's not my way. It's Christ's way. We have to come to, it has to come down to this. Who is the person of Jesus Christ, and what did he do? If he's only a teacher that offers us principles for living, then, yeah, take him or leave him. Maybe take a little bit of his principles, like Gandhi did. Gandhi said the best piece of literature he ever read was the Sermon on the Mount. He wasn't a Christian. Uh, but, you know, take parts of Jesus you like, leave the other parts, but don't get too radical about it. You know, don't go off and join a church or anything or Uh, Just, you know, he's a good man. However, if he was raised from the dead, then that changes everything. If he was truly raised from the dead, if what the apostles, the eyewitnesses said, if that's true, now that's a game changer. And now Christianity is a truth claim. We We either believe that truth claim or we reject that truth claim. The truth claim is not Jesus is a great teacher, period. The truth claim is Jesus is God in human flesh, come for the redemption of sinners, of whom we all are, so that we can be reconciled to a holy God, and this he has secured through his resurrection. That's how the apostles preach. When you go through the book of Acts, they don't sound anything like modern evangelists. They're not talking about, you know, your feelings and your loneliness and Jesus is going to make it all better. They don't talk about that. They talk about the claim that this one, Jesus of Nazareth, they had to say of Nazareth because there's so many Jesuses, so many Jesuses and and, uh, Yeshua's in that day, that he's been raised from the dead. And of this we know, we are all witnesses. And that is what makes him the Mashiach, the Christos, uh, the anointed one, the promised deliverer. Because he's been raised from the dead. It all hangs on the resurrection. So it's a truth claim. When you put it in those terms, you disarm your friend, your neighbor. And then evangelism doesn't become so scary. Because you just talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's kind of out of your hands. You see, I've even said it this way. I say, Christians believe that. Or the Christian faith claims that. I almost never say, I almost never, never, never say, I believe Well, of course I believe, but I don't want it to turn into, well, here's what I believe. Me. What do you believe? I'm right. You're wrong. I don't even like it when preachers say, well, I believe that dot, dot, dot. I don't really care what you believe. I want to know what's true. You tell me what's true. The only reason for being a Christian. If it's not true, we're a bunch of idiots. We're wasting our time. I just got older and fatter and it's, I'm 46, and I want to enjoy the rest of my life, and if this isn't true, I'm out of here. You know, you're all nice people, don't get me wrong, but I'm not going to spend my life with you. I'm not. i got better things to do if this isn't true. However, if it is true, that changes everything. That changes everything. It's all about whether or not it's true. And so when we look at the, the claims of Christianity... How did the apostles? How did they claim? How did they put it? They said, "Look, he's the only divine Savior. Who else is God and man? He's the only historical Savior." It's common in liberal theology to say that it doesn't really matter if you believe in the historic Jesus. You just have to believe in the Jesus of faith. In other words, whoever Jesus was historically—you know, a Jew in the first century—doesn't really matter. All that really matters is what you believe. That, that was the whole punchline and point of Dan Brown's um, Da Vinci Code, if, uh, if you saw that. It was all uh, just what matters is that you have a God experience with whatever thing you want. And we're all having our God experience, making sense out of our God experience. And for some, it's Jesus. For some, it's Buddha. For some, it's Oprah. For some, it's, you know, this diet plan. For others, it's your sports or your money or whatever. But we're all having a God experience. And in the end, it'll all be okay. Well, that's not true. In the end, it won't be okay. All roads lead to God, but not in the same way. You're either going to stand before God in your own righteousness, which are unfit for the presence of God, or in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus said in the upper room in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Uh, he says that he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Uh, the apostle said there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. There is only this one. If it, he was either, a, as C.S. Lewis put it, he was either lying about who he was, he wasn't the Son of God, and he didn't raise from the dead. Or he was a lunatic. He thought he was the Son of God. and thought he would be raised from the dead, but he wasn't, and he didn't. Or he is the Lord. Those are our only options. Because if he's going around saying, I'm the Son of God, I'm going to be raised again from the, on the third day, and if he didn't do it, that is not a good man. He was either crazy, self-deluded, or he was lying. And that's not somebody that we want to raise our children to say, yeah, be like this guy telling people lies, or just a madman. Uh, so it's one or the other. It's either true or false. It's a truth claim. Christianity is a truth claim. We really have to get away from talking about my beliefs. Because, see, in our society, everybody wants to talk about my beliefs. Well, my beliefs. You know, there's grandma. There's my teddy bear. There's the you know, little magical guys I believe in. My belief. It doesn't really matter what your belief is. You could believe in leprechauns. What matters is the truth. Is what you believe true? How do you know Christianity is true? How can you be sure? Don't bank it on your religious experience. Because people have religious experiences every day, all around the world. You have to go back to the testimony and the record. Is it more probable to believe the testimony of the eyewitnesses that Christ was raised from the dead? Or is it more probable, based on all the evidence, that he wasn't raised from the dead? It all hangs on that. That's how the apostles preached. And that's what, but we've completely gone off course in American evangelicalism today. It's all about uh, personal experience. And don't get me wrong, there is experience. There is experience. You know, I experience something every time I put the bread and the wine in my mouth. I taste it. I eat it. And God gives us experience. But the important thing here is that we understand salvation can't be found in anyone else. It's futile to look for salvation elsewhere. So now it asks this question. And this is really, um, remember, the times and the place in which this was written, 1563, you know, Western Christianity has been uh, Roman Catholic, uh, which... Through the Middle Ages, increasingly became associated with the papacy, and um, you know many practices uh, were adopted in worship over the centuries. Uh, some of which uh, are not only unbiblical but um, contrary to Scripture. And uh, not all practices, though we have to get away from that. We're, Christianity is an old historic religion, and not every practice of the ancient church is contrary to scripture. Sometimes Protestants overreact. Hold on, just hold your question. We're going to go through this real quick, and then then I'll take questions. So do those who look for their salvation and security in saints, in themselves, or elsewhere, really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? So uh, part of this is, as I said, in the 1560s, 16th century, uh, it had become common to pray to saints. Uh, Maybe some of you, uh, being uh, Roman Catholic growing up, prayed for saints. I don't know if anybody wants to offer that. See some heads nodding a little bit. Maybe you saw the uh, the the story that was going around the internet yesterday. It was so funny. Uh, I didn't. You know, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but it was. It went viral, and it really is funny. Uh, a poor dear woman in Brazil, um, Roman Catholic, for many years had a uh, a figurine of what she thought was Saint Anthony. And uh, in Roman Catholic practice, also in uh, Eastern Orthodox practice, I believe, you can invoke, call upon the saints to ask for help. And there are saints for different reasons. I think there's even a saint for, if you've lost your car keys. Uh, but this lady, for years and years, would get on her knees and pray, to, you know, with a little figurine before her. And her, I think it was her granddaughter realized what the figurine was. It wasn't Saint Anthony, it was Elrond from The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so it went viral, right? And uh it was pretty funny. And they were showing like pictures of Elrond and then pictures of, you know, Saint Anthony. And they Yeah, they kind of bear some resemblance a little bit. And I don't know, maybe maybe poor grandma's eyesight wasn't so good. Um it's funny, it's comical, we don't want to poke fun at the the poor dear lady. But uh, it, it 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 kind of sheds a little bit of light on this practice. Um, wh- where did that come from, anyway? Calling on saints. Where did that come from? And, and what about even calling somebody a saint? You'll hear me sometimes say Saint Augustine, Saint Francis, Saint you know even Saint we say Saint Luke, and because uh, he wasn't an apostle or um, Saint Mark. Uh, what does that mean? Well, uh, the the word saint. First of all, Hagias in Greek, the word saint just means holy one. And uh, that's you. You've been reckoned holy in the sight of God. So, for example, in Paul's letter to the Romans, he says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, what, what happened was, is in the early church, when we say early church, we usually mean the first five centuries. So, first five centuries AD. Uh, there were martyrs, you know, during certain times of persecution. It wasn't perpetual persecution in the early church, but there were times of local persecution. Nero had a very violent local persecution. Uh, Diocletian, Valerian. Um, there were different uh, periods of persecution, and even martyrdom. So if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, for example, well, it became common to uh, honor the martyrs. And oftentimes, churches were built over their graves, which is where you get the, uh, the tradition of naming a church, you know, St. Anthony or uh, St. Andrew's Church or St. Stephen's or St. whatever. Um, it's named after, usually, a martyr that's recognized, you know, not only as a brother, but yeah, he's a holy one. The problem, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, the problem came later in the, uh, the medieval church, and I'm not, as, I'm not exactly sure when this became official uh, Roman Catholic dogma. You always have to check because a lot of times there's practice in the Roman Catholic Church before it becomes official dogma. But there came a point where uh, uh, being recognized as a saint required canonization from the Pope. And so, um, you know, if you did something really extravagant in your life, you know, over and above, you were a great missionary or you were a martyr, um, you know, after your death, at some point, the Pope would declare that this person is a saint. And then it got even weirder. When that happens, uh, you know, according to Roman Catholic dogma, um, then the person who died uh, gets out of purgatory and goes right to heaven. So you get out of jail and you get to cross, go. It's kind of like a board game, a little bit. Um, and obviously that is not something that we can abide by in Scripture and, uh, and say is biblical. Um, the, the way that Paul uses the word saint is that we're all saints in Jesus Christ. Recognizing somebody from history, yeah, you know, St. Benedict or St. Augustine, there's nothing wrong with saying that when we recognize that this is a remarkable individual or Christian. The problem is, is if we think of them as being on a, a, a more acceptable to God than we are, or that they have a higher rank in heaven somehow than we do, um, even though there will be degrees of rewards, um, we, we don't want to ever think of Christians as being on two different planes. That's the problem. And uh, Now, as far as praying to saints... How is that justified? Well, the Roman Catholic would say, well, don't you ask people to pray for you? You know, and aren't we all saints? Okay, well, in that sense, sure, you can ask the saints to pray for you, but you don't pray to the saint. I don't pray to Justin, you know, St. Saint Justin, saint Justin um, please, you know, help me. Uh, you know, I can ask you to pray for me. And, uh, but we go to the Lord Jesus, who's the only person... Fit and worthy to receive the prayers as our mediator and bring them before the Father. He is the only mediator between God and man. And as the Heidelberg is pointing out, he's either a perfect mediator, complete in all that he's done, or if there's something else needed, if if we can go to a saint or even go to Mary, who is blessed above all women, If if we can go to Mary or to some other saint or look to ourselves or borrow from other religions to bring our, our requests to God, then somehow Jesus is not a sufficient Savior. And so all the Heidelberg is trying to point out is that, look, Jesus is sufficient. And you don't have to go to, you know, St. Anthony or Elrond or anyone to ask God for help. You go through Jesus Christ. That's why we pray in Jesus Christ, in his name. He's the only mediator who, by his act of obedience, by his life, death, and resurrection, by his righteousness and merit, is fit to bring our requests before the Father, according to Scripture. And so he, we have the confidence that he is a perfect Savior. But those who, uh, those who uh, look to people or things or themselves outside of Jesus Christ for their salvation and security actually deny the only Savior and Deliverer, Jesus. Now, I recognize that there are some people who are just confused. They haven't been taught any better. Um, however, we do need to help people understand that Jesus is a complete Savior. So, Oh, yeah, the whole book of Hebrews. whole book of Hebrews is good on that. All right, I have to stop because the children are going to release the Kraken, and then, um, and then I'll take some questions. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the time that you've given us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the one who saves us from our sins. We thank you that salvation is found fully and completely in him and that we need not look anywhere else. We thank you for the one who's made like unto us in his nature and that is the object of our faith. And we ask, Father, that you would forgive us of our sins because of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you receive us and accept us in him. For it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.